I said, that today we return to the book of Ezra and our account of the return of the Jews, the restoration of the Jews from that 70-year period of captivity. And we left off last week in sort of a, a bummer of a place to end. Remember the last verse of chapter 4, it said, Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem, it stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. What a... like. That's a bummer of a place to end. You know, you want to kind of get into the passage where, and all worked out happily ever after, but unfortunately that's where our passage ended last week. And remember, just by way of reminder, uh, that the work was moving along nicely. In the first few chapters, they get permission to go back. God stirs some people's hearts. They move back. They gather up the materials they need to. They reassemble. There's this great shout of praise that takes place there. Everything is moving along nicely. And sadly, as it began to move along nicely, the king then orders the work to cease. Now remember, it was King Cyrus of Persia that gave the order for the Jews to return to the land and begin to work. Now that took place, uh, 538 he gives the order, 536 we estimate that the work began there. Uh, and it's estimated that that work continued for about two years and no doubt, during that two years, work began to progress. First, the ground was cleared. Maybe some, uh, some studs started to go up. Some walls started to go up. Whatever it may be. But work began to progress. And as we saw in our study last week, the adversaries then took notice. Remember Ezra 4.1? It said, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the return exiles were building a temple to the Lord, they took notice. And unfortunately, all of that progress then comes to a sudden halt when Cyrus again issues another decree, this time ordering that the work would stop. And that is in the year 534 B.C. Now between, the, between chapter uh, 4, verse 24, and chapter 5, verse 1, we have approximately 15 years that goes by. So they're back in the land for a period of four years. The work stops now. They can't go on any further. And a period of about 15 years goes by until we come back again to chapter 5. The people were told that they had to stop at the end of chapter 4, and everyone had to go home, and that's what they did. For 14 years, they go home. Now, we don't have any record of this, but no doubt they went home somewhat dejected. I suspect they were somewhat disappointed. I imagine that there was a sense that they had failed. Maybe for some, there was even a sense that God had failed. God had sent us back to this land, and his hand was on us, and yet this king is mightier than God. And he made the work to stop. For some, I suspect there were even thoughts like this, God, I thought that I heard your voice, and I was sure that we were going to build you a building, and the temple would be erected again, and you would be praised in Jerusalem. And, and honestly, this sort of event, I see this as sort of a faith tester. And, and maybe I'm just reading into it my own personal experiences, but I've been in those places where I sense God wanted me to go do something. I put my hand to the plow, so to speak. I started doing it, and then the work didn't come to fruition. And I remember thinking to myself, God, didn't you tell me to do this? And if you told me to do this, then why isn't it being successful? Why aren't we coming to the end of this thing and seeing the temple erected and doing all these things? Did I mishear your voice? Did you fail? Did I fail? Was I off the mark when I thought you were leading me? It's a faith tester. So they go home. Now, as time goes on, if they were discouraged and dejected and all these other things, we read that the feelings began to fade a little bit. 
that disappointment began to dissipate, and the people then just begin to go on with their lives. And that's where chapter 5 is, that the people go on, if you will, with their lives, or in, let me say in between chapter 4 and 5. So let's look at the first two verses. It says this, Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, they prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of, God of, uh, of the God of Israel who was over them. And then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedek, arose, and they began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So there's some characters here. Zerubbabel and Jeshua, we've been introduced to them already in the book. Zerubbabel is the governor of the land, uh, the political leader. Jeshua is the high priest of the Jews, so he's, if you will, the spiritual leader. But Zerubbabel is the spiritual leader in and of himself as well. We're also introduced to two prophets now, Haggai and Zechariah. We haven't learned about them in the book yet, but we, we do know them from the rest of the Bible. There's two books in the Bible named Haggai and Zechariah. And it says that Haggai and Zechariah, these prophets, they come and they share with the Jewish people. And apparently their words were pretty convincing because, again, look at verse 2. The people heard their words and it says essentially that they got right to work. Now, we don't have recorded for us in the book of Ezra what these two prophets actually said. Probably something we want to write down because they're, they're pretty effective words. You know, if I ever have people slacking, I'll just use their words and it should do the trick here. So we don't have any uh, record in the book of Ezra of what they wrote down. We don't have any record of why the work ceased for 14 years. We don't know if the Jews petitioned the king when he said you can't do anymore. If they said, sir, please reconsider. We don't know if they ever did that. We don't know if they, during that 14-year period of time, made plans to get back to work. We'll go back there, and we'll take a little bit of a break, and then we'll go back when everything settles down. We don't know if they just gave up and said, well, it was a good shot, but I guess it's not going to happen, and gave up the idea altogether. We don't know that from the book of Ezra, but we do know that from the books of Haggai and Zechariah. That's why I love the Scripture, because it all just kind of fits in together, and it's so exciting to study all of the Scripture uh, as it all does fit in together. So would you please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Haggai. Now Haggai, you're like, oh no, I don't know where that is. Haggai is toward the middle of your Bibles. It's in what we call the minor prophets. Most people say, just look for the clean pages of your Bible. Probably haven't been there in a long time. All right, so the book of Haggai. And while you're turning to the book of Haggai, and if you can't find it, use your table of contents. That's what you learned in kindergarten. Just do that, no big deal. All right, but while you're turning there, let me remind you again of the last verse of chapter 4, in which it, this is in Ezra, in which it says, Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. Again, while you're turning to Haggai, let me uh, inform you of this. There are many Dariuses found both in the Bible and in world history. This particular Darius that's being spoken of here he ruled over Persia from 522 B.C. to 486 B.C. Now, the, most, the other most well-known Darius that we're familiar with probably is from Daniel chapter 6. And in Daniel chapter 6, that's the story of Daniel in the lion's den, uh, in which the king reluctantly has to throw Daniel into a lion's den because he wouldn't worship and serve other gods and, and things like that. That's not the same Darius. That particular Darius was the king over the Medes, roughly ending around 538 B.C. The one we're looking at right now is the king over Persia from the years 522 
to 486. So we're talking about a different Darius there. It doesn't really matter, I guess, uh, but don't mix them up. Now, he begins his reign in 522 BC. The verse at the end of Ezra chapter 4 says it was in the second year of his reign that these particular things happened. So depending on when he began in 522, did it begin in the end of the year or the middle of the year or whatever, that puts us roughly around the year 521 or 520. And that's how we do the math and figure out that the Jews went home for a period of 14 years. Okay? Well, hopefully by now, you found the book of Haggai. Look at verse 1 of the chapter. It says, Now in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Essentially what we read, correct, in Ezra. Now this is what they said. Verse 2, Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people, the Jews, say, The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruin? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Well, the Jewish people, 14 years had gone by, and during that time, the people had grown complacent. Now, remember, these are not some like so-so, sort of committed believers. You remember when Cyrus gave permission that the Jews could return back to the land? He essentially gave that permission to two plus million people. And only 50,000 said, you know what, if God is leading, I am going. These are serious believers that are trying to live their life, walk by faith in their life. When God stirs, they go. They were serious about their faith and stepping out in that faith. But the key word in that sentence is they were, because something had happened. They were serious, but something had happened. They had grown complacent. So again, notice the verse that I just read there from Haggai. He says to them, these people say the time has not yet come. Well, you know, that sounds real spiritual. Let me put it another way. You know, I just don't feel the Lord's leading right now, right? That sounds pretty spiritual. And based on Haggai's rebuke, it seems that they were making excuses like this. Well, you know, we, we just don't have the money right now to invest in a church building campaign or something like this. You know, times are, times are tight. The kids are growing, and, and with that, the bills, plus there's college and vacations and repairs, and, and I have boys and uh, grocery bills and, and all these things here. You know, it's just not the right time. No doubt, that's why Haggai brings up the phrase, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while the temple, this house, lies in ruin? And I see a parallel here in the lives of these Old Testament believers with our own lives here in the 21st century because these believers had started so well. God had called them and they responded. They were busy about the work of the Lord. They were sacrificing their time. They were sacrificing their resources. Really, they were sacrificing their lives. Everything they knew, they left to go back to an unknown place. That is the land of Israel. And not only were they called, but the work that they were doing, God was blessing that work. You remember these words from chapter 3, when it says, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites and the sons of Asaph and the, with the symbols to praise the Lord according to David. And they sang responsively, giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His mercy endures forever. 
toward Israel. And then, and then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Good things were happening in them and through them. But little by little, disappointments began to occur and discouragement set in. And before long, the work not only ceased, but it seems that it was no longer even a thought in their minds and that the people had simply moved on. And they had gotten busy with other things. Their lives grew comfortable and they became complacent believers. Have you been there? For some of us, are you there now? Perhaps you can recall a time in your life when you were really on fire for God and you were busy with the work of the Lord, but now not so much. Well, the same words of admonition then that Haggai gives to these people I think he gives to us as well. Look at verse 5 there. He says, consider your ways. You see, Haggai doesn't rebuke them for going out and getting drunk. He doesn't say, the temple lies in ruins and you're running around town partying and getting drunk and doing all these things. Haggai doesn't call them out for some gross immoralities. He simply points out to them, consider your ways. Essentially says to them, you've drifted in your commitment to me. You've become complacent. And you know, I'm reminded of Jesus' words in the book of Revelation, where Jesus addressed the church that was in Ephesus. And there, in the first of his seven letters to the seven churches of Revelation, Jesus says this. He says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. He says, you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now that phrase, seven or eight words in the English language, it could be translated in the Greek language just into one word, and that would be the word divorce. It's the same word that is used to describe in the Greek language divorce, or it could alternatively be departure. Some versions translate it this way, you have gone away from one in order to go to another person or to another place. And so Jesus says, you have abandoned your first love in order to go after another. And that's exactly what is happening back in our study of the book of Ezra. There was a time when they were passionate about the Lord and the things of the Lord and the work of the Lord, but not any longer. They're not passionate about his work anymore. And so Haggai says, consider your ways. Jesus says, remember, repent, and return. And so let me ask each of us this morning, where are you today in your walk with Jesus? Have you been drifting? Have you been just sort of fading away? Have you been growing complacent? Have you left the Lord completely and gone after another? Well, today is the day for each of us to get back on track with him. Not to wait until we get a little further down and then I'll get back, but wherever we are on that continuum to get back to where we need to be with the Lord. Well, returning back to the book of Ezra, we pick up in verse 2. He says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedek, they arose, and they began to rebuild the house of God that is in, Jeru- excuse me, in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Back to work. Praise the Lord. So maybe you have drifted or are currently drifting. Please take notice that the way of return is always available to us. Notice also the ministry of Haggai and Zechariah, in the passage they're referred to as the prophets. 
Notice what the verse says. It says that the prophets were with them and the prophets were supporting them. We read in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul teaches that the ministry of a prophet is this. The one who prophesies speaks to the people for their upbuilding, for their encouragement, and for their consolation. Do the words of a prophet, do their words sometimes sting? Sure they do. No doubt they do. But they're always with the purpose of encouraging the people of God and building them up for the work that they have to do. And that's exactly what Haggai and Zechariah are doing. They're side by side with the children of Israel, exhorting them and encouraging them in the work that God is calling them to do. We continue verse 3, it says, And at the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the province, beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and their associates, they came to them and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this, And what are the names of the men who are building this building? Oh, great. Here we go again. This is chapter 4 all over again. More opposition. Well, remember, we said this last week, that every time you set out to walk with the Lord, you can expect opposition, that it shouldn't surprise you, that your adversary, whether that be the devil himself or those that are around you or it's your own flesh, your adversary doesn't want you succeeding in your walk with Christ. And while you're home taking care of your own house and paneling your own walls, as Haggai mentions they were doing, your enemy could care less about you. But once you get serious in your walk with Jesus and you set out to accomplish the things of God, your adversary is going to take notice. We should expect opposition. And your adversary is going to look to stop it. And so once again, the opposition arises. This time, however, as we make our way through the chapter, you'll see that the work uh, never ceases. It doesn't cease. And notice why. As it says in verse 5, it says, because the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop. So this group of officials, it's led by a guy named Tatanai and Shethar Bozani. It seems to me that they're a bit more reasonable than the folks that rose up in chapter 4. They allow the work to continue, but they essentially, you know, they ask some questions. Who are you people? Who gave you the right to do this? They say, well, this is who we are, and we're going to continue to do what we're told to do. And they say, well, you know, we're going to write a letter to the king then. We will. We'll write a letter. And we're going to ask him if that's okay. And they say, all right, well, go ahead. You write a letter. We're going to. I got a pen right now. I'm starting to write it. Great. Here, here's 25 cents for some postage or whatever. You can mail it out there. This is like high drama. You know, there's a tension. Will they stop or won't they? We're, my wife and I, what were we watching? Some show, and they kept going to commercial. Fixer Upper. It's a nice little TV show on uh, some channel. And uh, they're like, do you want to see what the house looks like all finished? And we're like, uh-huh. Yes, we do. And they're like, okay, here. Right after the break. And I'm like, you. You know, whatever. They make me upset. So this is high drama. What's going to happen? Are they going to write the letter or aren't they? Will the king tell them to stop or won't they? Will they stop of their own accord, afraid? Or will they keep on going? And so on and so forth. And so we have a copy of that letter. How interesting. 2,500 years ago. And we have this letter. It says this. This is the copy of the letter that Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and his associates, the governors, who were in the province beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. They sent him a report in which was written as follows. Verse uh, 7, it continues, To Darius the king, all peace. Be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God. It is being built with huge stones, and timber is laid in the walls. 
This work goes on diligently, and it prospers in their hands. Amen. Continuing verse 9. Then we asked those elders, and we spoke to them thus. Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? We also asked them their names for your information, that we might write down the names of their leaders. Tattletales there. Continues. And this was their reply to us. We are servants of the God of heaven and earth. And we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. However, verse 13, in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house should be rebuilt. And the gold and the silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon, these Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon and they were delivered to one whose name was Sheshbazar. Now Sheshbazar is another name for Zerubbabel. It's the Babylonian name he was given uh, when he was in exile there. So it says, uh, they were delivered to one whose name is Zerubbabel, we'll say, whom he made governor. And he said to him, take these vessels, go and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem and let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. So they recount the history. Now, you guys have been here. We made our way through Second Chronicles. We've been already studying the first four chapters of Ezra. Is that basically the story? Are they the facts correct? They're absolutely correct. This guy did a nice job. I suspect they told him that Solomon built the temple, but they didn't quite pay attention. So they just say a great king built the temple. But they have the facts down. These guys aren't trying to deceive in any way. I think they're relatively good guys that are just looking out for their king. And so they send a letter to the king. I just read it to you. Then it goes on and it says, Then this Sheshbazar came and he laid the foundations of the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And from that time until now, it has been in building and it is not yet finished. Verse 17, the letter continues and concludes. It says, Therefore, if it seems good to the king, Let search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus, the king, for the rebuilding of the house of God in Jerusalem. And let the king send us his pleasure in this matter. Let him answer. What should we do? Should we make him stop or just let him do what they're supposed to do? Again, these guys don't seem to be bad guys to me. They seem pretty reasonable. They have some doubts. They ask some questions. And they write a letter to the king to verify his response. Now, the Jews, no doubt, are quite confident in their answers. They, just, they know the facts. They know that they're not in trouble. I remember a time when my, uh, my parents, I don't think my, anyone in my family is going to care if I tell you this story, uh, but we were young. I was probably about 17. My brother was uh, about 19. He was in college. He was home from college, and he decided to have a bunch of his friends over, and they were going to play cards and things like that and get beer because apparently you have to have beer when you play cards or something like that. And one of the beer bottle uh, lids or whatever, caps, I guess, I don't know what they're called. I don't drink very much, as you can tell. Uh, and so it fell underneath the radiator. And one day my dad's cleaning, he finds his beer cap under the radiator. And he says, whose is this? He says it to me. And I'm like, and I was following Jesus now, and I wasn't interested in that at all. And I said, well, it ain't mine. All right, I'm not diming anyone out, but I can tell you with great assurance, it ain't mine, and I'm very confident in my response and in my answer. And there's something about that. Just being able to go into a scenario and and know that you're in the right. And these guys just simply answer and said, look, Cyrus said we could be here. 
and he gave us the permission to do so, and so that's what we're doing. Totally confident in their answer. They know that God had directed them. That was their supernatural authority, and that Cyrus had permitted them. That was sort of the natural authority, and so they're just confident in the work that they're doing. But let's put ourselves in that scenario. What happens, though, if a letter is written back to the king and they can't find the permission letter? What happens if this new king that is there isn't as interested in being gracious to the Jewish people? It's been 15 years. Things change over that time. Things get lost over that particular time. So obviously, a little bit of tension calls for anxiety within the hearts of these people. But again, remember these words from verse 5 where it says, but the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews. Now, the Jews don't necessarily know that. But God, or Ezra here, is making it very clear to you and I that God's hand was on them, that God is in all of this. You're going to see that this little hiccup, this little thing that you just wish, I wish nobody would bother us, we could just come and do what we need to do, that this hiccup is in God's plan, that he is going to actually use this for very good. You know, the New Testament says that God uses all things for good and so on. Well, let's change that verse. This he's going to use for very good. This is a great blessing to the Jewish people that they're having to go through this hiccup here, that he's going to navigate the circumstances to bless his people. That these men, these women, these young people, they had committed themselves to obey the word of the Lord that was revealed to them by the prophets, and now God was blessing them for that obedience with his hand of blessing. All the circumstances, even with the opposition, are going to begin to just perfectly work themselves out. Now you might say, I don't believe you. Okay, well let's keep reading. Verse, chapter 6, verse 1. It says, then Darius the king makes a decree. And search was made in Babylonia, in the house of the archives, where the documents were stored. And then it goes on, it says, and in Ekbatana, the capital that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found. Okay, so he says, all right, look and see if you can find this decree. I don't know what they're talking about, but see if you can find it. So they pour through the archives there in Babylon. That's sort of this capital city there. And guess what? They don't find anything. It goes on, it says, in Ekbatana, the capital that is in the province of Media, that's where they find it. Some of your versions, by the way, may list it as Akmetha. Um, I'm not sure how those two are compared with one another, but nonetheless, they, they're synonymous here. And so they do there. Ekbatana or Akmetha, that was the capital, sort of the summer capital of the per for the Persian kings. And that's where they go on and they find this particular scroll. That indicates to me this. It indicates that there was some diligence required in this search. That they tore up the house there in Babylon and couldn't find anything. And rather than just giving up, which would have been a whole lot easier, wouldn't it? To just say, hey, you know what? We gave it our best shot. We didn't find anything. Just tell them to stop. If we ever come across something, you know, we'll get back to them at that particular time. But they don't do that. They keep on going. They keep on looking. There's diligence involved to continue the search until finally they find a decree containing Cyrus's signature. Look at verse 2. It says, And in Akbatana, the capital, <coughs> that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found, and on it was written a record. In the first year of Cyrus king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundation be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits, its breadth 60 cubits, with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury, 
And also let the gold and silver, silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought back to Babylon, be restored and brought back to this temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place, and you shall put them in the house of God. So Cyrus not only issued a decree for the temple to be built, that's verse uh, 3b, but he also orders that the temple vessels be returned, that's verse 5, and then notice this, and he required that all the funds for this building project be paid out of the royal treasury. And now Darius, the new king, is confirming all of that. So if the intent of these accusers was evil, and I'm not sure it was, but if it was, then their plan to write a letter, getting the work to stop, it truly backfired. Because clearly God's hand of blessing is on these Jews. And it reminds me of what the prophet Isaiah said, a verse you're probably familiar with. It says, no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. In this case, the weapon is a pen and a piece of paper, but no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. You know, this whole story sounds a whole lot like the story in the book of Esther of the wicked official Haman. And maybe you recall him. He's the one that despised one Jew. He could not deal with this Jewish man by the name of Mordecai. And so he decided he would exterminate all of the Jews because he didn't like the one Jew. And he comes up with this elaborate plan to do this, for this to happen. And if you know the story, then you know that his plan backfired on him miserably, directly leading to his own demise. Is our Lord any different today? The scripture says, I quoted earlier, if God be for us, who can be against us? What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? When God finds a man or a woman or a young person, or a church that he can partner with, is there anything that can prevent his work from being accomplished? And I hope you all cry out, no, there isn't. And now that these believers have fully set themselves to obey the word of the Lord, God, as it says in Second Chronicles, is showing himself strong on behalf of his people. And so the king's response back in verse 6 of the book says, now therefore, Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar, Bozani, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away from them. Let the work on the house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. He continues in verse 8, Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for rebuilding of their house. So here's this new king, Darius now making an additional decree granting permission to the Jews to rebuild the house of God which is further evidence of God's hand of blessing and then the letter goes on verse 8 continues and the cost is to be he reiterates this is to be paid to these men in full without delay from the royal revenue the tribute of the province from beyond the river not only should the work not stop but we should be the ones referring to uh, this king we should be the ones paying for it isn't that great wouldn't it be great if the government built us a church you know, because they like us and we have a nice smile, so they went and bought us land and built us a church. Whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. I mean, in, in some ways you can say here the king gave them a blank check. 
He gave them a debit card, and he said, look, it's filled with money. Use it for whatever you need for this particular building project. You say, no, it doesn't say that. It really does. Look at like verse 9 there. It says, and whatever is needed. So they say, look, we need a new backhoe. You got it. Hey, we need some more materials. You got it. Whatever is needed. They are now able to tap into the royal treasury to pay for those things. Not only that, but notice what Darius says. If there is any opposition to the Jews and this building project, Darius has a plan for them as well. Look at verse 11. He says, also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of that person's house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house made into a dunghill. That's pretty clear. King Darius is clearly on the side of the Jews in this matter. And anyone who thinks differently should pretty much get on board with him, or they will be impaled on a board of their own, as it says there. Darius is not a believer, but he sort of issues this prayer. Look at verse 11, or excuse me, uh, verse 12 here. He kind of issues this prayer. It's almost like a curse, actually, uh, that he pronounces there upon any that are going to hinder this work. So he goes on and he says, May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with diligence. This guy is on the side of the Jews. And this is a clear example in Scripture, and I would suggest to you it's no different today, but it's a clear example in Scripture of the principle that we find in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 21 says, The king's heart is a stream of water. In the hand of the Lord, he turns it wherever he will. God had a work that he wanted to accomplish. That work began with a judgment upon the Jewish people and a period of captivity out of the land. So what does God do? He moves upon the heart of Nebuchadnezzar to move into the land of Jerusalem to attack and lead the people into captivity. Then it's time for the Jews to return to the land. So what does God do? He moves upon the heart of Cyrus, granting permission. Anybody wants to go back can go back. Now it's time to see that this temple project is completed. So what does God do? He directs a king to accomplish his purposes and to pay for it, by the way, which is quite cool. I even wrote that. Is not this the coolest thing you have ever seen? I put in my notes here. And you and I, we are just as much his children. And we can trust him. And we can leave things into his sovereign hand. God is going to accomplish his purposes. And he will use whatever means or whomever necessary to do so. And again, you can entrust your life to him in all things. I just think that is just such an encouraging word for us as individuals, as families, and as a church of believers, that we can trust him. And he will accomplish his purposes, even if we don't see how it's going to happen. Now we go on in verse 13, and it says, Then, according to the words sent by Darius the king, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethbaz, whatever, and their associates did, I was really trying the first six times, and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. I suspect that the threat of pending impaling was a pretty good motivator. So they did whatever the king ordered. Verse 14, And the elders of the Jews, they built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius 
and Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius, the king. So remember, when did this, our story begin today? It began in the second year of Darius, the king. Here now they complete this work in the sixth year of Darius, the king. There something you'd like to share with us? I'm just kidding. We don't. We love you, brother. Um, second. Well, that seems pretty significant. Is there like, yeah? All right. Please stand by. Yeah. Okay. Do we need to know about it? Well, look at it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay. All right. They start in the second year. They finish in the sixth year. Now, take out your calculators on your phone. How many years is that? Four years. Thank you, son. So the four years goes by. Four years seems like a long time for a building project, doesn't it? It is a long time for a building project, four years. But they did their work, and their work prospered. But here's the key thing. It wasn't easy. You see, sometimes I think we think that the work of God is going to be easy. And if it's not easy, then God must not be in it. And since I've encountered some roadblocks or some difficulties or some challenges, well, because I'm tired, that God must not want me to do this anymore. Nobody ever promised that the work of God was going to be an easy work. And so we see here, it continues on to the sixth year. That's four years later. And sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that if God is in it, it's going to be a piece of cake. That's not the testimony of Scripture, and it's not the example of this particular passage. Kingdom work should be hard work. And just because God was blessing their work didn't mean that the work was going to be easy. So I encourage you, as you serve the Lord, there are times you're going to hit roadblocks, times you're going to be tired, times you're going to want to give up. Don't give up. Just because the work isn't easy doesn't mean God isn't in it. He, calls us, he causes us to plug our way through those difficulties. Verse 16, And the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the rest of the returned exiles, they celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. And they offered at the dedication of this house of God a hundred bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. Let me just make a quick aside here. Notice the offering is made by and for, it says they're all of Israel. And I bring it up because you hear a lot of talk about the so-called lost tribes of Israel. Have you ever heard that phrase or that expression of the lost tribes of Israel? In fact, one of the leading religious cults in America, Mormonism, is based on the idea that they are descendants of one of the lost tribes that made their way to America. Thus, they are the pure religion, whatever it may say, they may say. There were no lost tribes following the captivity. And we see here in this passage, all of them are present, and sacrifices of, notice, 12 goats are made for each of them, as the text says, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. There are no lost tribes. And now the closing paragraph, beginning in verse 19, it says, And on the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover, for the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together, and all of them were clean. And so they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them 
and separated himself from uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. That would be Gentile people. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful. And he had turned the heart of the king of Assyria. Now that refers to Darius. Uh, and earlier he's referred to as the king of Persia. But the area that he's ruling that's being spoken of was Assyrian land. So that's why he's referred to that. So that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Praise the Lord. Last week we ended on sort of a bummer of a note. This week we end on, all oh, right, that's fantastic. Praise the Lord. How God is at work through these believers and he's moving the hearts of anyone that needs to be involved to see that the work is accomplished. This, this is a good news chapter and it's a pleasure for us to consider it. But we're done. So let's go before the Lord. Father, we, uh, we do thank you for, Lord, this passage. Lord, it's encouraging to our hearts. Lord, as we, uh, we consider the work you're doing in our lives individually, as families, Lord, as a family of believers, a church, Lord, you know, sometimes we hit these roadblocks and we wonder where you're at. Sometimes we get off track. Sometimes we drift away. Sometimes we wonder if you're in it and you want us to continue to persevere. And so, Father, to read a passage like this is just so encouraging. Lord, to know that this journey of faith that we're on is not new to us, but your children throughout the millennia have gone through these similar things that we go through. Lord, we have our ups and our downs. We have our questions and our wonderings. And Lord, when your eye is upon us, as we begin to commit ourselves to obeying your word, to heeding, if you will, the voice of the prophets and walking in your ways, Lord, you bless and you navigate circumstances and you cause all things to work together for good for those that love you and are called together according to to your name, Lord, truly, if God be for us, who or what can be against us? Nothing. And so, Father, we commit ourselves to your sovereign leading and will. And we ask that you would do miraculous things in us, Lord, that our lives, like these believers here, would be a testimony. That people would be able to look upon our lives and the example of our lives and say, man, look how God's working and has worked in that person's life. So we commit ourselves to you, Jesus. We love you, and we're, great, we're grateful for your care. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.